Open your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. John 20. Uh, Confrontation with our own mortality has a way of grabbing our attention. Uh, like, Like none other, it has a way of grabbing our attention. As soon as we come face to face with the very fact that we could die, all of a sudden our fight or flight reflexes kick into action, and we begin to to process things differently in that moment. Sometimes we fight, and sometimes we run. But regardless, when we come face to face with our own mortality, it has a way of grabbing our attention. When I wrestle with my kids at home, typically I am the bad guy, I'm the villain, I'm the ogre or the robber or the whomever. I'm either chasing them down or they're chasing after me. Uh, but one of the things that I sometimes do just to get their attention and to, to let them know that I'm really a, a big mean guy is uh, I knock them down on the floor and then I grab them by the ankles and pick them up upside down. And they start screaming and things like this. And then I usually walk them over to a pillar that we've got in our, our house and I just sort of put them on the pillar. upside down and kind of walk off. And when I do that, they tend to start getting really panicked because they come face to face with real danger. Now, they're not really in danger. I know this is being put out on the internet. This is, they're not really in danger. I'm obviously not going to let them fall. However, it is fun to sort of get the upper hand there for a moment and, 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 and let them know. But the point is, when we come face to face with our own mortality, with our own feebleness, it tends to grab our attention in a different way. We saw this in this series that I've called Life in the Desert. We have seen uh, on a few instances these times where we're in the midst of trial and what, that, what the Bible actually says to us in those times of suffering and trial and uh, like now being separated across the city. We saw Isaiah being confronted by the holiness of God in the temple and seeing his own sin. And what we understood from that is that that in the midst of these kinds of times of of self-isolation, as it were, we still should be mindful of our own sin because we always stand in the presence of a holy God and we should keep mindfulness, mindfulness of our own heart. And we saw that trials also have a way of grabbing our attention. These times of suffering and trial, they, they grab our attention because they threaten our very life. They threaten our very life. We saw in First Peter that his command to us is that when these times of anxiety and fear, maybe even frustration, begin to rise in us, it should drive us to our knees in prayer so that we seek after the Lord in prayer, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But then we didn't just need to look at our own selves. We also need to look to Christ and shift our gaze towards him. And as we came upon Palm Sunday, we saw him marching his way into the city of Jerusalem with people chanting his name and and praising his name and hailing him as king. And, And what we saw in that is that our Savior had not only seen us in the desert, but he had come to us while we were in our time of most need, while we were enemies of God. He came to us and rescued us. Then today, I want to see how, our, how this, this time in the desert that we're in and the resurrection of Jesus absolutely changes our view of the desert. How the resurrection of Jesus 
absolutely changes fundamentally our understanding of trial and this time in the desert. It's going to be a little bit different this morning. We're looking at connecting the resurrection to larger parts of Scripture. And so we're going to look this morning at the whole of John 20. We're going to read the entire text, and we're obviously not going to go verse by verse through the entire text. We're going to take the text, and we're going to look at how it connects to what John has been saying in the book as a whole and what it says about Jesus' resurrection that applies directly to us. Let's, let's read in John 20. And just as a, a warning or whatever this is, if the power goes out here and we lose all forms of communication, there's a storm outside. So just if, if something happens and it all goes wrong, just, just know the power probably went out. So John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced that the disciples, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. And when he said, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this testimony of truth recorded in your word. I thank you for what it says to us, and I pray, Father, you give us wisdom and understanding to take the words that you have given to us here through the Apostle John, understand what they mean, and apply them to our lives, that we too may have life. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last week, I have been putting out uh, a a series of videos walking through the events of of Holy Week. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can find those videos on our channel after this is over. And and if you're watching on our website, you can also find them on our blog uh, after this is over. Um, They're provided, hopefully, for a resource for you. But when the thought originally came to me, I had several reasons for wanting to do them. The first was because I, I wanted to make sure that everyone, that we were all clear on the events of Holy Week and how the events of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion on Friday actually transpired. Um, second was because I, w- I wanted to orient our thinking this week all around the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. In other words, I wanted to occupy our mind space with the thoughts about Christ every single day. That, w- that was my goal. And, and then third, I wanted to hopefully open your eyes as you're reading it to what the scriptures are saying took place and how significant the events that took place nearly 2,000 years ago actually are. And so what I hoped you would pick up on as we went through uh, the story and as we looked at the various verses and things like that where we find this story being told, what I hoped that you would pick, on, pick up on is that there are about a billion different details about Christ's life. There are a million different things that you could say, but did, but did you notice that not one gospel writer gives you all the details. Did you notice that? That John gives you some, and Luke gives you some others, and Matthew gives you still some others, and Mark gives you still some others. And so you kind of have to look at the story unfold and, and kind of piece them together. And then there are times where one author may put two events right next to each other as if they happened chronologically in order, but you know that they didn't. 
And the authors, it seems, actually do this on purpose. And you have to leave wondering why. Well, the reason is because the gospel writer's agenda isn't to give you a chronological biography of the life of Jesus. Their agenda is to convince their audience that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that He lived a perfect and sinless life, that He died on a cross and absorbed the wrath of God for you, and then He rose on Sunday. And if you believe and submit to Him as Lord and follow Him as a disciple, you will have eternal life. That's their agenda. That's what they want you to see. That's the argument that they're making for you. And they do it all in a little bit different way, but they're all trying to make that essential argument. John actually just, in his gospel, puts his cards face up on the table and just tells you as much right here at the end of the gospel in verses 30 and 31. You can see what he says right there at the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. You can see, he just lays it out there for you. He says, I could have told you a million different things that Jesus did. I could have told you endless amounts of things. And the implication there being that if I was writing a biography, I would have. I'd have told you as much as I possibly could squeeze into the pages of a book. But he tells us that he carefully selected just a small percentage of the signs and wonders that Jesus did to make the most compelling argument to you so that you might believe and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So then we come to chapter 20 of John, second to the last chapter, and this chapter brings to completion all of the major themes that John has opened up in his gospel. We're not going to get to all of them today, just a couple, but he, he's closing up all these major themes that he's opened up. And I think the only way to deal with the resurrection of Jesus is really by looking at the story as a whole, like we've just done, read it as a whole, and then examining what John actually wants us to know about the resurrection of Jesus and why it's significant. And so the first part of this that we need to understand is that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is bodily. In other words, it's not some just spiritual resurrection. So, So don't just look at the events of chapter 20 of John and assume that what John is doing there is saying that Jesus has somehow transitioned into a ghost. It may look like that on the surface, or you may be tempted to think that as you read the chapter because there's some strange stuff that happens. But all of it is John convincing you that what Jesus had was a bodily resurrection, and it was the ultimate resurrection. It was the one that they were anticipating when the disciples came into Jerusalem with Jesus on that Palm Sunday. They're convinced that this is it. This is the time where Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to lay down the gauntlet. He's going to drive out the religious leadership. He's going to drive out the Romans from the land. He's going to establish his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And anybody that doesn't like it can take a hike. They're pretty sure that this is going to happen. If you think back to Peter in the garden 
Remember, he's held by the guards that come to arrest Jesus. Jesus tells the guards to let him go. And as soon as they do, he takes his sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. Now, that's not the action of a man that's expecting a spiritual kingdom. That's the action of a man that's expecting Jesus to establish his kingdom. And you know what? I and the other 11 disciples with me, we're all going to reign with him around his throne. Now, he's not carrying a sword because he's expecting to cut through tall weeds. In fact, Peter and the disciples have it on good authority that this is it. They've listened to Jesus. At one point, Jesus even tells them, he who doesn't have a sword must sell his cloak and buy one. And, and one of the disciples answers, we, we have two. Okay, it's good, you have two. Peter thinks this is it. And then Jesus dies. And to add insult to injury, one of the 12 betrayed him and then went out and commits, committed suicide. So what, what is this? The first battle and their person who is the dead raiser, the blind healer, the one who gives the ability to walk to the lame, their secret weapon in the battle is dead. How does that even happen? You can feel that, right? You can feel that moment of desperation and depression that sets in on them as Jesus dies, this is not supposed to happen. This chapter tells us that at least by Sunday evening, the disciples are behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And maybe that's because Mary went down to the tomb. She saw that it was empty. She told Peter and John they saw that it was empty. They think maybe the Sanhedrin is going to blame them for it and come after them and kill them. And so they start locking the doors and they're afraid of the Jews. But I, I doubt it. It seems more likely that they've probably been in some form of hiding since Friday. They came expecting a war and they were defeated right out of the gate and they lost their secret weapon. And along the way, they've outed themselves as insurrectionists and enemies to the state of Israel. Now, what happens when you lose a battle and you've outed yourself as an insurrectionist and an enemy of the state? What does the state do to the ones that lose the war? They kill them and they enslave them. But there's news from the battlefield. See, it seems that one of the women, Mary Magdalene, was going to tend to the dead bodies on the battlefield, the dead body on the battlefield, the casualty of war. And it was gone. It wasn't there. Now, of course, that's impossible because they had seen where it was laid in the tomb. And they, they presume, I'm assuming, that the Sanhedrin was taking great care to guard the tomb and to place guards in front of it lest any grave robbers come along. The Sanhedrin would have sealed the tomb at the very least. There must be foul play afoot. And so she turns back and she tells the disciples. And that news is enough to draw them out of hiding and bring them to the, places, to the place where they laid him and to see for themselves. 
And then John tells us an unusual detail in verses 5 to 7. It seems that there are these linen cloths, the very same linen cloths that they wrapped around Jesus' body, and they're now laying in the tomb deflated, like the air that had been let out of a balloon where his body once was. So whoever came into the tomb to steal his body went through the trouble of not only unwrapping the only valuable thing in that tomb, being the linens, they unwrapped it, and then they put it back where it was. Essentially, it sounds like in the form that it was when it was around his body. But then even stranger than that, the cloth that was wrapped around his head was not just left deflated, it was taken and neatly folded and set apart from the rest of the linens. It seems like a strange thing for a grave robber to do. A lot of trouble that he goes through for taking the cloths off of Jesus and laying them in the place where he was. And then it does raise the question, as we understand what happens in the rest of the chapter, it does raise the question to us, why would John give us such a strange detail in this gospel about the cloths? Why is, why is that important? That seems like such a random thing, and why would he walk in the tomb and see the cloths and go, oh, I believe now? It seems so weird. Well, there was this man a while back, about 10 or so chapters ago, back in chapter 11. His name was Lazarus, and he was raised from the grave. In fact, Jesus was the one that did it, walked to the tomb, and, and he raised Lazarus from the grave. Oddly enough, John could have told us that Lazarus walked out of the grave, and everybody said, oh, great, Lazarus has risen from the dead. Amazing. And they were all happy and astonished, and they went home to celebrate, which is what seems like happened. No, he, he made sure we heard a very specific detail about Lazarus' resurrection. And it happens in John eleven forty four, where he says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was raised from the dead, sure, but, but Lazarus would die again. In fact, there are death threats that are given to Lazarus, and they, they actually matter. After he's raised from the dead, John tells us in John 12, 10, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Because that's what you do when you want to cover up the fact that the Messiah is among you. you. You kill, silence all of his miracles. That mattered to Lazarus. That mattered. Lazarus would, would have reason to be afraid. Lazarus couldn't even get out of his own grave clothes. He had to have help getting out of his grave clothes. Lazarus was miraculously raised from the dead, but he would die again. He, Lazarus returned to the life he once had. And John is telling us Jesus' resurrection it was different. It was different. There was no body. It was, 
body was gone. But, but it was different than Lazarus's. It seems that even the grave clothes couldn't hold him. Now, what happened to Jesus was, was actually the kind of resurrection that the disciples longed for. Remember, the disciples believed that there would be a resurrection. In fact, all the way back to the scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Mary tells Jesus as much that they believe Lazarus is going to raise from the dead. Bodily, he's going to get up from the dead at the end of all things. They believe in the resurrection, and the kind of resurrection that happens to Jesus is exactly the kind of resurrection that they're anticipating, the kind of resurrection that they long for. Lazarus' resurrection was not that kind of resurrection. Lazarus walked into death, but then Jesus called him back out through the same door he entered. He entered into death, and then Jesus called him back out that same door. He returned to his own life. Jesus, however, went through life, walked through the door of death, and then blew it wide open. Not through the same doorway. He went through death and out the other side to an entirely new kind of life on the other side. A life we've never seen before. What is that? It's completely different. He walked into the door of death and then out the other side and blew it wide open. The life he experiences now is a state where death, for that matter, the other physical properties of the world are inferior to him. However, it's not a spiritual resurrection, as though Jesus is a ghost. It's his body that actually got up from the grave. It walked out. It's his body. And John makes sure that we know this by looking at verses 20 and then 25 to 27, where he has the scene with Thomas and before that, the scene with the disciples. His body maintains the nail marks and the wound in his side. These are defining features of Jesus that serve as proof to the disciples that indeed it really is him. And yes, it's the body that went to the cross. But somehow it's changed. That brings us to the really strange stuff. And our second point. Jesus' resurrection is the first of a new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the first of a new creation. So Jesus' body is clearly raised. He has the, the nail marks in his hand the wound in his side to, to prove it. But it's also very different. For instance, as the disciples are behind a locked door in verses 19 and then 26 and 27, Jesus just appears there among them. He just waltzes in like he owns the place. But in order to understand why this is happening, because if you're asking a question, how does he do that? What, what is that? You're not the first person to ask that question. But to understand the answer to it, you have to go back to remember where John started with his gospel. And it's really, really important is to remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1 in the gospel of John. And you may not recall that by memory right off the bat, but I, I can almost guarantee you as soon as we start reading it, it will jog a memory or two. John 1, 1 to 5, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those first few words surely sound important to you. In the beginning, you remember those words. Those words are significant. They actually are the first words in the entire Bible, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John has one key addition to make to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Jewish reader reads that and says, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm familiar with these words, but what is this? What are you talking about here? The Word? What? That's not how it goes. John says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then there's all this talk about light coming in to darkness and dispelling the darkness. You see what John is doing? He, he, he's creating the creation story from the first pages of the Bible, and he's putting them in the first pages of his gospel, but he's putting Christ at the center of it. He's reframing the story and helping you understand the word that we are worshiping, the word that was resurrected, the word that was crucified there before us. He was there in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you need to understand that though you've read Genesis 1 your whole life, you need to stop for a second and you need to realize that this Christ that I'm telling you about was there. All things were made through him. But as you read John 1, you realize the story that he's telling you is in some ways like Genesis and in other ways, very much not like Genesis. In Genesis, the man and the woman in the first two chapters, really the first almost three chapters, they make it, about three, two and a half chapters, they make it, and you're kind of happy. At three, you start getting a little nervous. But the first two, you, you're, you're pretty happy for this couple. They're innocent. They're, they're in the garden together. They love each other. They have... They're happy together. In John 1, men love darkness. They don't even recognize Jesus. So the update to this creation story has a dark and, and sinister tone to it. In fact, it's, it's somewhat backwards when Genesis starts, we're happy. There's, there's a man and a woman. They have fruit trees. They can eat from the fruit trees. Ah, the fruit trees. They can eat from them all. What problems do they have? Then tragedy strikes. And you end up about a few chapters in just going, man, is there anything we can do to get back to Genesis 1 and 2? Is there any way we can just get back to that scene? I want to go back there. This Flooding the earth is such a tragedy. In John's gospel, from the earliest notes, we just end up wanting out. Is there an exit to this story? 
Is there an escape hatch somewhere that I don't know about? The men love darkness. They're running from the light. And John tells us about Jesus, the word who was in the beginning. And for the first 12 or so chapters, he gives us seven miracles that demonstrate Jesus' power to create something new. I've heard that before. That sounds a lot like the Genesis story that I remember. Except here is this word who was with God and was just as much a part of the creation story as God the Father was. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that is made. And then he comes into this world that loves darkness and gives seven miracles that demonstrate his creating power. But remember, up to this point in the gospel, no one has recognized the Word who was with God as God. Everyone's running from Him. There's some hints with some people. Many of them run because the men love darkness instead of light. It's not until He's resurrected and He appears to the disciples and Thomas, and Thomas sees that it's Jesus That this is indeed the resurrected Jesus standing before him bodily. And he says, my Lord and my God. The point is that the whole of the gospel of John is building to this crescendo where Jesus raises from the dead and becomes the firstborn of of a new creation. He is God who has created an entirely new man. One that supersedes the old man. Though his body is made from the old, it's made into something that's entirely new. The way Paul kind of frames it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think is an important read for you to go back and read sometime later today. But to put it in concrete terms, kind of like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. What I mean by taking from the old and making and something entirely new is that the elements that compose his body are not on the periodic table. That's what I mean. To put it in that kind of concrete terms, the new creation body is made from the old so that the old actually does rise from the grave, but it is transformed and it's not held to the same natural laws that the old body was held to. So don't look at Jesus appearing in this room and think ghost in your mind. That's supernatural. That's, that's a, a, something that's not of this world. That's something that's entirely different. Something otherworldly. Instead, think that his new body is greater than the natural world. It's supranatural. Supranatural. It supersedes the natural world. So Jesus appears in a room. He has gone through death and out the other side to a new realm of reality. And then what does God, who has just created new man, then do when he appears to his disciples who are still part of the old creation? In verses 22 and 23, John tells us 
that he breathes on them the breath of life of the new creation, which is the Holy Spirit. He does what God did originally to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where he breathed into him the breath of life. Here is the new man breathing into his disciples the breath of life of the new creation, which is the Holy Spirit. What then are they to do with receiving this breath of life? He tells them just before that, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He doesn't use those exact terms, but he says, as his Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Multiply. Fill the earth. Have dominion. Tell others the gospel. And as you give them the good news of the gospel, they're going to hear it and they're going to believe in the gospel and they're going to receive this newness of life and they're going to be born anew. They're going to be born under the new man, under the new creation, and they're going to go out living for the kingdom of God. The disciples, by virtue of their association with Jesus, have become new creatures themselves with the exception that they don't yet have new bodies. But they are new from the inside with the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. The Bible tells us that this is going to happen in the Old Testament and then tells us that it did happen in the New Testament. If you're paying attention... Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Or how about Isaiah 43, 18 and 19? Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What about 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or what about Ephesians 1.13 and 14? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come and has been raised from the dead and has inaugurated a new creation. And who hasn't looked at what Jesus is doing here? He no longer is threatened by death. He, he's no longer, no longer is cancer a concern. No longer is COVID-19 a concern. No longer is, is the temporary affairs of man a concern. Who hasn't looked at Jesus in that scene and wanted what he has? Who's looked at Lazarus and gone, man, I really envy that guy? Going into death and then coming back out again. Having only to die yet again. I don't envy him. I feel sorry for him in some way. But who hasn't looked at Christ and not wanted that? But please don't miss this. If you are a follower of Christ, he has given you the seeds of the new creation in the Holy Spirit that dwells in inside you. So what then is the result? 
Well, the result is that the Holy Spirit who embodies new creation work, the creation of the new man, has, has come inside you and, and that Holy Spirit is daily doing war with your own sin and your own flesh. The Spirit that dwells inside you is going to war and fighting the old flesh, bringing it to its knees in confession of sin. The old man doesn't want that. The old man wants to go on sinning. But the new man that's taken up residence inside you wants to bring that flesh to its knees and force its tongue to confess to the Lord the sins that lie in your heart. That's why it's so important that the church community be open with each other about the struggles that we have in our daily lives, the sinful struggles that we we participate in because it means that we as a covenant community can help one another bear each other's burdens and grow in our sanctification through those sinful practices and away from them. But second, it, it, it means that the church community should mandate that every person that joins the church should in some form or fashion not only just give a confession of what they believe about Jesus, but a testimony about how they are growing in distaste of sin because a growing distaste for sin is a sign of the new creation. It's not the only sign, but it is a sign of the new creation. But then likewise, if a church is filled with gossip and slander and backbiting and grumbling and complaining and bitterness, how do you think that sounds to people who come in expecting to find the sounds of newly created people, but only hear the shrieking abominations of the old man. The church becomes the pre-adolescent kid who has no idea he reeks. He's nose blind to it all. The church smells like a rotting corpse, but has convinced itself that it's part of the new creation. What does this mean for us? The first thing that I think how this text applies to us is that Jesus' resurrection is available to you by belief in the testimony. Jesus' resurrection is available to you by belief in the testimony of John. John actually tells us that in verses 30 and 31. Read it with me. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember the disciples at the beginning of this chapter. What do they do? They walk into the tomb and they see the cloths and they believe. Mary turns around and sees Jesus and her eyes are opened in verse 18 and she calls him Rabbi, Lord, Teacher. She recognizes him as Jesus. Her eyes are opened. The disciples in John 20, uh, John 20 verse 20, they are glad to have been with the Lord. Thomas at the end, others throughout the gospel, the woman at the well, Nathaniel in chapter 1. Thomas, here at the end in verses 28 and 29. My Lord and my God. 
They believe. And if you believe, belief in his name, your eyes being opened, your heart being opened to receive the new man, a work done for you by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of God himself giving you rebirth, breathing into you the breath of life, you come to believe and you receive this spirit that leads you into repentance and faith. But if you reject, John actually tells us about that as well in verse 36 of chapter 3 in his gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Second thing that I think it says to us in the midst of trial doesn't matter what trial you're in. Doesn't matter how desperate the desert feeling really is. If it's frustration all the way to cancer. The second thing that this Jesus' resurrection actually tells us is that the threat of death is no longer our concern. Our concern now is the possibility of life. The threat of death is no longer the concern. The threat of death is no longer the fear that we should have. The possibility of life should give us hope. Jesus has not only come to us in the desert like we saw last week, giving to us atonement for our sins, but he took away the teeth of the desert. You see that in the resurrection? He took away the teeth of the desert. Paul even recites a passage from the Old Testament. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus has taken away the sting. He has taken away the teeth of the desert. It has nothing it can threaten me with. And I don't think, brothers and sisters, I don't think that we totally grasp the life that awaits us on the other side. I think if we did, we would hear Paul's words in our minds in Romans 8, 18, that what we're suffering through pales by comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I don't think that we grasp it. Because if we did, don't we realize that we would have no use for the life that we're in now? But the the writers in the New Testament actually make the opposite argument. Because there is resurrection from the dead, your life now actually matters. The works you do now matter. You pleasing the Lord through your through your your good deeds now that you have now that you are in Christ, now that you have the new man on the inside, now that the Spirit is working through you to produce these good works in your members. Now that you can do that, you can live a life pleasing to the Lord, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. So not only does he give to us new life, he actually gives meaning to this life, even if we are in the midst of desert, because he has taken away the threat of death to us. It has no real application to us. To the point where Jesus and the New Testament writers even say, you, you, if you are a disciple of Christ, you won't taste death. What does that mean? Well, 
It's not a a change. It's that you're not not even going to taste it. You're not going to experience it. As you draw closer to the threshold of death, don't you think that that spirit, the new man inside you, that God has put in there is going to start longing for home? Don't you think as you creep ever closer to the doorway of death, the new man is going to look through and see the hole in the back of death that Jesus made and say, you have no idea what awaits on the other side. Do you think that there's any chance that when you get close to death, dear Christian, and your flesh begins to give way, that the spirit inside you is not going to jump for joy at the thought of resurrection, at the knowledge that you're soon going to see Christ face to face? Do you think that the spirit that he's put within you is going to make you long for that day? Of course it is. Understand, Christian, all of that was bought for you by the blood of Christ and made possible by his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we ever even possibly say thank you enough for what you have done for us in Christ? We praise you that he is risen. That death no longer has dominion over us. That though we die, yet shall we live. That all the promises that you have given to us in the scriptures about your faithfulness to us and your goodness to us on that day will be experienced by us in a way that now we can only feel hints of. Father, I pray that for any that are going through those deep, desperate moments of trial, that Jesus' resurrection would have life breathed into it anew for them. That they would rejoice that the Son of God 2,000 years ago rose bodily from the grave. What a blessing that is to us. May we live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.